again. Right, my mic just turned on, so you heard again. Hey, it's good to be here. We're at chapter two of Revelation, and uh, we're starting into what's called the seven letters to the seven churches. If you were gone last week, it was July 4th weekend. Hey, we're glad to have you back with us. I will do my best to make this series like CIY or CIY, CSI and less like Lost. <clears throat> Here's what I mean by that. In Lost, if you ever missed an episode, you had no idea what was going on. And they tried to do that little, you know, 10-minute recap, which was half the show. And it never worked. You never had any idea what was going on. With CSI, you know, kind of like in each show, you could follow what's going on. But if you watch the show on a regular basis, there's character development, there's things happening. There's a richer experience if you don't miss anything, but you aren't left out if you did. That's the way we're going to try to approach this. So my best efforts won't be able to bring you up to speed on everything. You're going to need to go back online and listen or, or read or watch or whatever what's online. So <clears throat> we're into these Revelation 2, seven churches. And I told you last week, the number seven isn't just a number. It has a weight to it. It has a meaning to it, biblically as well as in the book of Revelation. There are seven letters to seven churches represented by seven lampstands, and then there are seven stars, and there's also seven things that all seven letters have in common. Are you getting the point yet? Seven means more than seven. Here we go. Seven things that these letters have in common. This is just a little Bible information for you. You may toss it. You don't care. There'll be a lot of that today. Here we go. Number one, each letter is addressed to the angel of a church. You need to note here, angel is the Greek word agalos or angelos. That's where we get it. And it literally means a messenger. In the biblical context, it means a messenger of God. Now, in the case of Revelation, it could mean a bishop, it could mean a pastor, or it could mean a spiritual being, like we would think of when we think of angels. That's important for you because it may change the way you read the letters. Honestly, I don't know that it matters a ton, but I just want you to know that. Angelos doesn't always mean, mean spiritual being. It can actually mean something else. Number two. Each letter includes an identification of Jesus. We looked at that at the end of Revelation 1 yesterday. Well, yesterday, last week, John's vision from Revelation 1 of Jesus is relevant to each of these seven churches. We'll talk about the one that's relevant today. And many of those visions have a very distinct point or purpose. Number three, Jesus says, I know to each of the churches. This is huge for you. Because what it signifies is knowledge of Jesus about them. Jesus knows who they are, he knows what's going on among them, and he is very concerned with their overall health. Jesus gets pretty specific. I know this about you, meaning though you can't see me, I see you. That may be the most important thing some of you hear today. Wondering if God is actively involved in your mess, the answer is yes. Number four, each church receives an assessment of their status from Jesus. That's not always a good thing. That leads to either a commendation or a condemnation from Jesus. Two churches get no commendation. Last week I said one, let me clarify. Laodicea and only certain individuals from Sardis. So technically Sardis as a church, as a gathering of believers, gets no pat on the back. However, certain individuals do. Jesus says, I know some of you, you're not like the rest of them. This is important when we get to our third church, when we get to Thyatira. I'll tell you why. I believe it's critically important. However, you need to see that there's two that get no commendation, and then there's two that get no condemnation, and that is Philadelphia and Smyrna, and we'll talk about them next week. Number five, each church receives an exhortation to stay the course and keep going. Exhortation is not a word we use very often today, so most of you are like, I don't know what that means. It's like a go team go, but stronger. 
It's kind of like when the coach says, come on, you got to go out, you got to score the touchdown. There's five seconds left on the clock. It's fourth and one. We must score. It's like there's not a choice. If you don't, you lose. That's an exhortation. But it's got a lot of raw behind it. Number six, every letter ends with a statement about. And here it is. In the New Living Translation, it says, all who are victorious. We're victorious in this world. You can see I put the different translations down there. Some say overcome in this world. Some say conquerors in this world. Some say victorious in this world. It's the same concept in all of them. Life is hard. It's going to get harder. But anybody who holds on to the end, I will reward. And everybody's offered a different reward based off their church and what they're struggling with. And then lastly, each of those seven letters contains this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit. When Jesus showed up, he taught in, anybody know? Parables. Two people knew. I need to do a better job teaching Jesus. Okay. Jesus taught in parables. And the thing about a parable is it's powerfully effective if you understand what he's saying. And it's terribly confusing if you don't. And Jesus did that on purpose. Actually, it was prophesied in Isaiah that he would do that. And he did it because that way those who have a heart to hear will hear. And those who don't and just want to uh, abuse Jesus' teachings will actually be further confused. And the book of Revelation works the same way. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, the Spirit says you need to listen because you need to pay attention. And what I want you to do throughout, throughout this series, but especially today, because if I never see you again, this is my one chance for you to do this. I need you to ask yourself this question today. Am I Ephesus? No, don't ask that about me. Ask that about you. Are you Ephesus? Do you find yourself living like them and all of their strengths and all their weaknesses? And then what is Jesus' message for you? Now, with that in mind, let me set up Ephesus a little bit. Ephesus is a city port. Now, today, if you were to visit modern-day Ephesus, it'd be in Turkey. You'd find that it's not on the water anymore because the water has moved. However, in that day, it was. And it was one of the three major cities for Rome in the ancient world. Around 250,000 people lived in Ephesus in that day. Because of that, because they didn't have trains and cars and, and all those kinds of things, planes, the way they transferred goods from place to place was by water. So if you are a major city and a major port, a major stop-off, you controlled all of the goods to the local area. So this would have been a fairly wealthy city. However, it also brought a hodgepodge, a melting pot of people from around the world to your city on a regular basis. Because Ephesus was located as one of the Roman cities, again, through the years, adopted and you know, became Greek and then Roman, if you're just following history, what happened was it was also a hub for worship. Many, many gods worshipped in Ephesus, were worshipped in Ephesus. And when I say gods, I mean the Greek, Roman, Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. I've got a fantastic book. If you're ever curious, you can come in and borrow it sometime. It's about that thick. It's just on mythologies of the world, and a ton of it is Greco-Roman mythologies. Now, part of what's going on in Ephesus in that day, just to give you a little context, is there's a king, I believe, according to when Revelation was written, there's an emperor. His name is Domitian. That's where I locate the book of Revelation during his reign. And because of that, Domitian was a bad dude. He took persecution of Christians to a whole new level. Uh, there was often persecution of Christians, but one of the things Domitian did is he was a part of what's called the imperial cult, meaning the emperor is also worshipped as God. In fact, he made a rule, you must refer to him as Lord God. And because the Christians stood their ground and said, we absolutely will not call you Lord God because there's only one person we call Lord God, Essentially, what he labeled Christians as, check this out, is atheists. Because they wouldn't worship him and call him Lord God. 
Domitian had a son that he loved very much, but his son died. Now, if you're the Lord God, then what is your son? The son of the Lord God. Sound like anybody else you've ever heard of in the Bible before? You could see the way this became hard for the believers in Ephesus. Because not only did they have to bow down to the king, they also had to bow down to his son who had passed and worship him. And they said, no, there's only one son we bow down to, the son of God, Jesus Christ. And some of you are like, are we going to open up Revelation? Trust me, all of this is relevant. One of the other things that was located in Ephesus was a temple to a goddess known as Artemis. That was the Greek name for, for this goddess. The Roman name for her was Diana. So you may read in the Bible or read in other histories. It's the same name used in both. Here is an actual statue of Artemis. Artemis was known as the fertility goddess. So if you wanted to have a child, by the way, children were considered a great blessing. That was how you became powerful and prominent in ancient times. You would uh, go into the temple of Artemis and you would make a sacrifice to Artemis. Or Diana. Also, Artemis or Diana was also known as the huntress goddess. And so she's often seen with a bow and walking around with a stag next to her. And there's all this connection there that I'll get into a little more as we go. However, what you need to know is in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. Let me show you what the current modern day temple looks like. Here's a pillar. Go ahead and put that up. There it is. That's all that's left. Isn't it impressive? Doesn't it make you go, wow? Now, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Apparently, our standards for beauty have changed. This is what it really would have looked like, or at least the best, our best artist rendering. That's just one of the pillars, and again, it's not even fully intact. You can see here there are approximately 127 to 130 pillars in the temple. We don't even know how they built it or constructed it without the technology and things that we have today. In fact, this was such a big deal in Ephesus that people traveled from all over the world to make sacrifices to Artemis in her temple. It is literally one of the seven wonders of the world. Inside the temple literally was a bank treasury because you didn't dare, if you were, say, a, another emperor or king of another country and you wanted to mess with Ephesus, you didn't dare mess with the temple because you'd be messing with the gods. So people would bring in their jewels and their banks and their money into the temple. In addition to that, inside the temple was a large tree structure. Part of Artemis's story is Artemis uh, was apparently birthed between Zeus and another goddess, like all the other weird mythological stories. And the way that it was brought about was uh, Artemis's mommy got, was really, really in labor, and she was on this island, and she was leaning on a palm tree, and out came Artemis and her brother. And so, therefore, she's known as the goddess who is attached to a tree. Inside Artemis's temple was a large tree structure where people would make sacrifices. And below that tree structure were all kinds of other uh, false gods and people that you could worship and bow down to and pray to and ask for help from. And people would do this and travel all over the world. And this is the city of Ephesus where this church exists that Jesus is writing to. And the pressure is great on them. To bow down to Domitian, to bow down to Artemis, to worship the many gods of Ephesus. And to not do so made you a fool, made you evil, made you dark. Well, if you want to know where the Bible, where the gospel came to, to Ephesus, you can find this in Acts chapter 18 through 20. You can read it later on your own, just learn some more about Ephesus. And what happens is Paul is traveling with a couple. Their name is Priscilla and Aquila. All three of them together make tents for a living. That's what Paul does 
in order to pay for himself to teach others about Jesus. He never wanted to be a burden to the churches, so he had a full-time job in addition to another full-time job. Clearly, he wasn't married and didn't have kids. So, while serving with Priscilla and Aquila, he leaves Corinth, where we get the book of Corinthians. He goes to a town called Centria. He leaves Centria, and he heads to Ephesus. And the reason he's going to Ephesus is because he's on his way to Jerusalem, and it's the port town. So, he has to leave from Ephesus. Now, what we believe he's doing, we're not 100% sure, the reason we think he's leaving Ephesus to go to Jerusalem in such a hurry is because he's just fulfilling what's called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, I won't have time to go into all of it, but it was a commitment you made to God. You wouldn't let alcohol touch your lips. You wouldn't cut your hair. And at the end of it, Paul shaved his head. So you may want to think twice before you take up the Nazarite vow. Some of you, it wouldn't be that far of a jump. Regardless, I'm trying to make sure you're with me, all right? So Paul goes on to Jerusalem, and when he leaves Ephesus for Jerusalem, he doesn't really stop there. He leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila, and they keep talking about Jesus. They run into a guy there named Apollos, and Apollos is a sharp, good-looking, fantastic speaker, apparently, whose middle name was Matthew. And moving on, I'm just joking. You're with me, all right? Everybody thinks I'm arrogant. We're moving on. All right, I'm joking. Apollos is a great young preacher, but he doesn't know the whole gospel. So Priscilla and Aquila spend some time fixing Apollos' doctrine, and Paul comes back from Jerusalem into Ephesus. He spends some time there, they plant a bunch of churches, and the gospel takes off like wildfire. In fact, the gospel is taking off so powerfully that it starts to hurt the temple of Artemis. You can go read this in Acts chapter 19 if you'd like. It hurts the temple of Artemis because if you have the biggest temple in the world to one of the most popular gods, because she's essentially the sex goddess, if that's the case, then what happens? <laughs> what do you want to do? You want to make idols for people to buy so you can make money and sell them to them. And all it is is wood or clay or gold or silver. But hey, you can sell it for twice what you pay for it, and it's a big moneymaker. But as people are converting into Christianity, people are letting go of their idols. And it's hurting business. It's bad for business. And so you can read it all right there in Acts 18, 19, 20. It blows up in their face, and persecution becomes intense. Under Domitian, persecution was so intense that you know that Christians actually ran into catacombs. You may have heard of these before. They actually dug holes, cavernous holes in the ground so they could do a proper Christian burial underground and hold church services and not be thrown in prison or killed for it. That's how bad things got. Domitian was such an evil dude that when he died, the Roman Senate actually created a law to erase Domitian's memory. He literally killed 20 senators, including three of his own family members. He was a bad dude. Now, the last thing I'll say before we open to Revelation. Paul, before he goes to Jerusalem for what would end up becoming the end of his life, he stops by these churches that he's planted to encourage them. And he stops by Ephesus, and he gathers together the elders. And I want you to see what Paul says to them. Here we go, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out! Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. And now I entrust you to God and the message of His grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those He has set apart for Himself. 
I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who were with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul hops on a boat. Everybody cries and he leaves them. They are begging him, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul. It's not going to go well for you. And Paul, you know what Paul's answer is? The Holy Spirit has revealed to me this is what I must do. It's going to be hard. This is what I must do. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison being persecuted for his faith as teachings about Jesus Christ. Paul knew somehow what was going to come, but he was faithful to it. But he left this church in Ephesus. He said, I'm telling you, what's going to happen is false teachers are going to come up even from among you. You don't even know who they are yet. Think about how that plants in a mind. So when false teachers start coming around, you start going, is it him? Is it him? Is it her? Is it him? Is it them? What are they saying? Is it lies? Is it true? Can I trust them? And what starts to fracture is relationships internally. And Paul was warning them, cautioning them, but they were starting to miss it. We'll get to that now. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. That's enough setup. If that's the introduction, this could be a long one. Here we go. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. We'll talk more about the lampstand towards the end of this message, but I just want to hit right now to remind you, 11, the, the lampstand would have been what we maybe call a menorah. It had seven different candelabras on it. It's clearly defined in the Old Testament, in Exodus, and Numbers, even Leviticus. You can find it all in there. And here it represents the church. So there's seven churches represented by a lampstand. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who walks among the seven stars, and I'm the one who walks or I hold the seven stars in my hand and I walk among the seven gold lampstands. The seven gold lampstands is easy. Revelation 1 told us what that means, right? It's the churches. What is the seven star thing? Well, we know it's also partially angels, but there's also something else going on. Let me show you a coin. This is Domitian. Go ahead and put the picture of the coin up. This is a picture of Domitian on one side. While I grab that picture. There it is. And on the other side was Domitian's son. Notice Domitian's son is sitting on the world. And do you see those funny-looking designs all around him? Do you know what those are? Stars. Let's count them. Start on the left, all the way at the bottom by the A. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, well, that's ironic. You'd almost think Jesus knew what was going on in the culture. So when Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus and he says, by the way, this is a rare thing because when they got rid of everything known about Domitian, they also burned all of his coins with his face on them. So somebody found a version of it. This is actually from, I think, the British Museum. You can actually find it today online. But what Jesus says to them, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. Remember, this is the son of Domitian, who's the Lord God, so he's the son of God. What Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, I know that in your midst there's a temple to that guy. By the way, massive, massive statue. The head, by the way, when they destroyed all the Domitian stuff, all we have left is a head and an arm from the statue. The head alone is about the size of me, which may not be that intimidating, but it's big. And this is in the area. And what Jesus is saying is, I walk among you. I know what's going on among you, both in your church and in your culture. I'm well aware of the stuff you're facing. I'm well aware of what you're dealing with. But don't bow down to that. You bow down to me. And when he says here in Revelation 2, 1, the one who holds the stars in his hand. I won't get into this too deep because some of you who love language would eat this up, but most of you would be lost, and don't worry, I am too. 
There's two ways to say that you hold something in your hand. Right now, I'm holding this iPad in my hand. That's true. But that's not what Jesus says in the Greek here. Jesus actually says, and I know you probably won't be able to see this, there's a coffee bean. And if Jesus were going to use this illustration, we know he'd use a coffee bean. It'd probably be covered in dark chocolate. But anyway, (laughs) what Jesus says here in the Greek is actually this. I hold the seven stars in my right hand. See, in this analogy, I hold something really big in my hand. In this analogy, those seven stars are tiny. In other words, you ain't got nothing to worry about. I literally hold your culture in my hand. That emperor who thinks he's so big and bad is so powerful, he's a coffee bean. He's tiny. He's insignificant. He doesn't mean anything. So don't be afraid of him. Don't be afraid of what's going on. Don't be afraid and quit and give up. I literally hold it in my hand. Where do you think the song, he's got the whole world with coffee beans in his hand. That's the version you teach your kids now. This is what Jesus is trying to get to. Now jump down with me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered from me without quitting. This is huge. What Jesus just did in this moment is he just affirmed what Paul said. Now, because of when Paul would have been in Ephesus and where I believe that Revelation was written, we're talking about the next generation. So this would be me telling my kids, hey, there's this guy, Paul, and he was here and he worked with us and he told us about Jesus and here's who Jesus is. And when, before Paul went to Jerusalem, kids, he told us this. And that's why over these last couple decades, we've seen these false teachers and we've taken care of them. We want you to know there's these men who raised up and said, we're apostles, we're apostles, but they're liars and they tried to deceive us. And kids, don't you listen to them. And if you hear that message day after day, year after year, and you actually watch your parents and the elders of your church dealing with hard stuff, it shapes you. So now when you're the leaders in that church and you're the adult, all of a sudden you don't have a spirit, a heart of love. You have a heart of pursuing truth. Take a look at what Jesus says next in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. That's never good words to hear from Jesus. In case you weren't sure, that's a bad day. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Let me just unpack what Jesus just did and what he's about to do. I'll foreshadow a little bit. Jesus just did the Oreo, or he's about to do the Oreo effect to conflict. You know what I'm talking about? Start with something good, give him the meat in the middle, the creamy stuff, the hard stuff, and then give him, you know, another cookie at the end. That's what Jesus is about to do. So he starts and he says, look, I know your hard work. I know how you've toiled for the gospel. I know how you've worked hard. You've fought against evil. I know how you've done all those things. Great job. But I have this against you. You didn't do it in love. And somewhere along the way, you got suspicious. You started looking over your shoulder. You started questioning each other all the time instead of loving each other. 
Just to give you an idea of how strong all of these statements are, let me just walk you through them. If you were to go back and look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, the word work there, when Jesus says the word work, it is the Greek word kapos or kopos. And literally what it means is toil which exhausts. What Jesus is saying to them is, I know you are striving endlessly. I know it is depleting you. I know you've had long days, long nights. I know this is hard work. I see it. And then the second thing there in Revelation 2.2, he says, and I have seen your patient endurance. This is a Greek word, hupomone. It literally means triumphant fortitude. Or maybe a better way to explain that because that didn't mean much to me. It's the ability to change suffering into glory. The ability to change suffering into glory. So get what Jesus just said, the cookie part of the Oreo. Look, I know you've toiled hard. I know it's exhausting. I know you're looking how to change your painful circumstances into glory. I know that. You're doing a great job, but I have this against you. You haven't done it in love. It's not enough to be right. You must be right in the right way. I want you to think about that for your marriage right now. Your kids those in your life group. I love this quote by William Barclay. Get the right quote. It may be that the church at Ephesus was so busy heresy hunting that it had lost the atmosphere of brotherly love. It may be that a hard, censorious, critical, fault-finding, stern self-righteousness had banished the spirit of love. Okay, so question time before we dig in more to what Paul's saying here. Is this you? Is this your heart? As you look around at your culture, as you look around at your friends, as you look around at your enemies, as you look around at your church, as you look around in your marriage, have you become so focused on being right that you forgot to do it in the right way? And Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus are strong. Return to me, repent, go do the things you did at first, or I'll just come and remove your lampstand. We'll talk more about that one in a minute. Let me tell you about how this has impacted me. I started studying this two years ago, and um, I was really excited to teach it to you two years ago in the fall, and uh, God just wasn't ready for that yet, so I kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And uh, here we are now, but over that time, what I found is Jesus wanted to do a work in me that I wasn't ready for yet. And uh, the way Jesus often works in my life, and I'm not sure about you, maybe you'll relate with this, is when Jesus really wants to get my attention and I'm being hard-hearted or bullheaded, as my dad would say growing up, uh, Jesus will plant a seed and then he'll just keep watering it and watering it and watering it. So it kind of starts to grow and take life and begin to produce fruit in my life. But Jesus is faithful. He never gives up on me, I've noticed. But he's also, he doesn't let me have the easy way out of just hardening my heart and ignoring him. One of the things I, I'll never forget, it was last fall, I don't remember exactly when, but it was last fall, late, maybe winter, it was in that time frame, I was in my car, and I was running late for a meeting, that'll shock some of you, I know, and uh, on my way to the church, I was in such a hurry, I just backed out, I didn't even have time to change the radio station, I don't live that far, things were kind of a mess at home, and I was just trying to rush to get here to the meeting on time, and the radio station that was on was one of the local Christian stations, and they read a passage of the Bible. And when they read it, I remember, even though I was in such a rush, my mind was in such a hurry, I remember thinking, wow, that can't be right. Like, I know that passage they're reading, and I've never heard that before. You ever had that happen? And I literally thought to myself, 
this must be the message translation because I've never heard this translation before. And that was my heart's way of justifying what I was hearing because I knew it was from God for me. So I got back, and for the next couple of weeks, God kept saying, you need to look that up, you need to look that up, you need to look that up, and I just, I'm busy, God, I don't have time, God, I don't, I'll get to it later, God. That's kind of how the conversation went. And about 10 days, two weeks or so later, I finally had a free moment, and I opened my Bible, I was like, fine, I'm just going to look it up, and I read it, and the New Living Translation, I went, wow, it's right there. I don't know what translation they read, it was right there. You want to know what I read? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Lest you think you know it, listen. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no records of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And in my office that day, I felt like God said to me very clearly, Matt, it's not enough to be right. You must be right in love. I do hope I get to talk more about this in the next few weeks. It's part of what I need to share. I've not always been loving. I've not always been kind. I've not always been, uh, whatever the opposite of rude is, not rude. Use that one later. <laughs> Honey, I'm sorry I've been not, not rude. <laughs> I've not always done this well. It's hard to lead um, people who are following you if you aren't leading them well. I'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but this really hit home, part of that God planting a seed and just continuing to water it and grow it and reveal things to me that I didn't see and I didn't know, um, things I was maybe hardened to or blinded to. You know, we heard this illustration recently. If, if I have, you know, my fist over my head, you may say, Matt, you got a fist over your head. And I go, no, I don't. It's right there. It's above your head. No, no, it's not up there. I've looked around. It's not there. The point of the body of Christ is that we pull the thing down and you say, look, now do you see it? Oh, you mean that. So often we become like Ephesus. So quick to punish, so quick to judge, so quick to keep a looking eye over our shoulder rather than love. And Jesus' words to Ephesus is clear and strong and bold. I know what's going on among you. However, you must be in love. So a couple months back, I put my son to bed. It was going to be another, another copos kind of night, another long night. I knew that. So I was laying in bed with my son, and we prayed, and we sang, and we did all the stuff that we do. And I said, all right, buddy, I'm going to go. And he's like, Daddy, please lay with me for a few minutes. I'm like, buddy, I don't, I can't. I don't have time. I need to go work. And he's like, Daddy, please, just a few minutes. I'm like, okay. 
I know he's young, these days are gonna pass, someday it'll be weird if he's 25 and ask me to sleep in bed with him. I'm, okay, he's four. All right, buddy, I'll just lay here for a few minutes. In my head, I'm ticking off the minutes, you know, I'm counting, okay. It's been about two minutes, it's been about three minutes. And, and after a few minutes of silence, he's like trying not to fall asleep because he just wants to be with his daddy. You know what that's like? And he says, Daddy, there's nothing more important than faith, right? And I said, what? There's something wrong with your face? And he said, no, Daddy, faith. And he was so asleep, he was slurring his words. He had to say it four times. I'm like, son, I have no idea what you're talking about. Go to sleep. No, Daddy, face, face. I'm like, I get it. I don't know what you mean, but yes, son, your face is very important to me. <laughs> and then it dawned on me what he was saying. He said, faith, Daddy, faith. And here's how God works. See, my son had to teach me something. I said, my next word to him was, you are absolutely right. Are you saying faith, Levi? Yes, faith, Daddy. Yes, Levi, there's nothing more important in this world than your faith. You remember that. You hang on to that. And then as soon as I said it, Jesus said to me clearly, that's not what I said. You know that, right? And all of a sudden, the next verse that came into my head immediately was uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. <laughs> Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And my son was probably asleep at this point, no longer listening to his daddy preach. And I looked at him and I said, son, i got to correct myself real quick. Your daddy messed up. I don't even know if he heard me, and I said, faith isn't the most important thing. Love is. And he said, what? <laughs> I said, we'll talk more later. Go to sleep, son. Your daddy's going to go work. I love you. I kissed him goodnight, and I walked out of the room, and I knew that Jesus had just spoke to me through my son. It's not enough to be right. You must be right in love. Look, I, I see what's going on in our culture, too. It scares me. Guys, the persecution isn't getting easier. Before, before this service, I was actually trying to look up a verse real quick, and I saw some guys followed a, filed a $70 million lawsuit against Zondervan for the way they've, they've translated the New Testament. Is that going to win? I have no idea. I doubt it. I was in Kentucky this past weekend visiting my in-laws, and um, down in Kentucky, there's a, a county clerk who said, I will not issue a marriage license to uh, gay men and women. And the governor has said, you either need to do that or you need to quit. And he has said, I will not quit. So you can either throw me in jail or fire me. You see where this is going, right? It's a lawsuit that's pending that's going to change the shape of the way Christians are treated in America, one way or another. And my advice to you, believer, whatever you do as you hang on to biblical truth, do not let go. You cannot compromise in the culture because the culture is evil. However, you must do it in love. It's not enough to be right. You must be right in the right way. And does that mean it'll be easy? No. As we read these seven churches, you'll see just how hard it is. Love this quote here. It comes from Breaking the Code and Understanding the Book of Revelation by Bruce Metzger. The presence of Christ departs when well-intentioned people, zealous to find the right way, depart from the ultimate way, which is love. All right, come back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this, 
This is in your favor. Here's the other part of the cookie. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Now, honestly, as a pastor, I wish we knew more about the Nicolaitans, but we don't. I'll get more into this in a couple weeks when we get into Thyatira a little bit next week, I believe it is. Many Bible scholars believe the Nicolaitans are to be connected to the Balaamites. That probably doesn't help you at all, but it will when we get there. And the Balaamites had basically two main teachings. The main teaching was one was sexual immorality. In Ephesus, if the major temple of the world is the Greek god or Roman god Diana and Artemis, and she's the fertility goddess, what do you think is rampant in Ephesus? Immorality. And there's people popping up among the churches in Ephesus and saying, it doesn't matter what you do, it's your body. As long as it makes you feel good, do it. And Jesus says, if you believe that, I'll just take your lampstand out. Those are serious words, friend. The other thing that we believe about the Nicolaitans is that they taught that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter because, hey, these aren't real gods anyway. Or, hey, they're just other gods. It's okay to pray to them. And here Jesus is saying, no, see, there's only one God, and I will not share my position with another. Now, something I want you to understand as we kind of close out here, let's read Revelation now, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and I'll try to make this make sense. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give him fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We talked a little bit about the tree of life last week, but let me try to make this a little bit clearer. I want to read you this quote real quick. This comes from uh, William Barclay about the Temple of Artemis. Check this out. It says this, and they'll be trying to catch up with me and keep up here. It says, the Greek saying ran, the sun sees Nothing finer in his course than Diana or Artemis's temple. It was the pride of Ephesus. When it was being built, women gladly offered their jewels and their ornaments that it might be beautiful. Alexander the Great had offered all the magnificent spoils of his eastern campaigns, if only his name might be inscribed upon it. But his offer was refused, for none but the name of Ephesus might be connected with the temple of Diana. The temple of Diana, or Artemis, again, big and beautiful people came from all over the world, and inside was this tree often referred to as, guess what? The tree of life. You know why? Because you could find asylum there. So criminals of all kinds of backgrounds, murderers and thieves and evil people would get to Ephesus as quickly as they can to try to get away from the government. And in fact, at some point in history, they actually expanded the asylum beyond the temple because there were so many people to within a mile of its borders, which back then would have been massive. So if you could just get to within a mile of Artemis' temple, no matter your crime, you could find asylum. You could find freedom. You could find that you wouldn't be punished for your sins. Do you see the connection? Jesus says, I am the tree of life. To whoever who is victorious, I'll give real asylum. To anybody who hangs on to the end in the midst of persecution and doesn't quit and still loves, I will remove their evil deeds. This is called eternity. True life. Life that is really life. What Jesus is saying into the church in Ephesus in Revelation is, while in your town there is somebody who's offering you asylum, they can't really offer you what I'm offering you. So don't turn to her and her lies. You turn to me no matter how hard it gets. Because I won't quit on you. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. 
He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In Genesis, we see a tree of life. In Revelation 22, we see a tree of life. And in the middle, we see a cross. And I am convinced with all my heart. If I'm wrong, fine. I'm convinced with all my heart. Both trees are pointing to Jesus. The whole point is Jesus hung on a tree. And when he hung on a tree, it provided life, eternal life. A life that took away the pain of this world and eternity with God by restoring paradise to us. The question for us is, what are we going to do with Jesus? Now, let me just close this out with this last thing, and you'll find scriptures in the outline that I won't have time to get to. In the Old Testament, there was this thing called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and it was said that God's presence was in there, and there was a thick curtain in front of that. And in between that Holy of Holies, and it was the next place was the Holy Place. And in there, there were various uh, holy items, and one of those holy items was something called the Bread of Presence, or what's known as the Showbread. When you start looking back at the temple, remember, everything points to Jesus. And some things point to heaven. And some of the times it's hard to figure it all out. But Jesus tells us when he shows up that he is Emmanuel, God with us. The showbread is called the bread of presence. It's the bread of Jesus there even in the Old Testament. And now when we take communion every week and we take bread and we break it, you know what we're doing? We're symbolizing the fact that God is with us here right now. And in that Old Testament temple where the bread of presence was, there sat a lampstand. The very same lampstand being used in Revelation. And the point, if you go back and read Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, you'll find the point is that the lampstand was supposed to be pointed in such a way that its light was always reflecting onto the showbread. Remember Revelation, the lampstand means the church. Here's the point of all this picture and analogy and, and symbolism. The church is the lampstand that is supposed to shine its light on the bread of the presence of God, Jesus Christ. And if we don't do that, Jesus says, I'll make it really clear, this isn't hard for me, I'll just take your lampstand out and put a new one in your place. Oh, wow. So how do we prevent that from happening, Jesus? You keep loving the way Christ loved. You speak the truth in love. You speak the truth, but you do it in love. But Jesus says this, who takes a, a light and puts it under a bowl? No. Don't we put it out for all to see and benefit from? But then he goes on and he says in the same passage, Matthew 5, but let's use salt as an analogy, Jesus says, but if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it to anybody? If the church loses love, it's worthless. If the church loses its saltiness, if it loses its connection to Jesus, it's got nothing. In fact, Jesus says, it's not even useful for the dung heap. It's not even useful to throw on dung and kill it because it's got no benefit to anybody anymore. Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus are so strong and so powerful, and maybe they are to you as they are to me. Jesus has been referring to, ref, shaping in my heart. I don't know the word I was looking for. He's been shaping in my heart for 12 months now. Matt, love. Love deeply, love freely, love openly, hang on to truth, but do it in love. I want to pray that over you right now. And um, look, I don't want Jesus to ever have to remove this church or you. I realize when we leave here today, some of you may never step foot in this church again. The message is too confusing or, or, or too hurtful or you don't like it. 
And the only thing I ask you to do is wrestle with Jesus. When I'm done praying, if you are ready to take that next step and say, you know what, I want to love Jesus and I want to love people and I need help, would you just come down front while we sing and just go over here to my left under this curtain and say, hey, would you help me get to know Jesus? My understanding is there are four baptisms today happening from summer in the sun, one after the service and three after the last service. Why don't you join them? You don't have to be alone. Let's all stand. I'll pray and we'll sing. Father God, thank you for Jesus dying on the tree of life, the tree that undoes our sin, the tree that brings healing and wholeness and unity, the tree, God, that will unite us with you again. God, Lord, I pray if any of us, if any of us have been caught up in truth and not in love, Lord God, would you come right now? Convict us in our hearts. Let us know this word is for us and show us the clear path forward. God, we know the way to walk in love is to remember the height from which we have fallen. God, we know it means for us to look back at our own life and realize how desperately we need grace, and so does everybody else. So God, help us to be people who walk in grace as we walk in truth. We love you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name.